Hey guys, this is Anand Shippy from AnandTech.com. This is the official AnandTech podcast. Um, this is episode two. And similar to uh, our, our first episode from two weeks ago, I guess now, uh, we have three folks here. Uh, myself, uh, we've got Brian Klug again, our senior smartphone editor. Hey. Hey guys. And uh, joining us for the first time here is Ryan Smith, our senior GPU editor. Hi, everybody. Um, so I, I promised last time that we talk about SOCs, but um, just before the call started, actually, we, we were on this kind of Thunderbolt rant. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> I, it, like Thunderbolt's been something that I've been very, very excited about, right? Because the, the concept is, you know, we've gotten so much. You actually see this in servers, too, right? Like if you walk through a data center these days, um, you see tons of compute in really, really tiny chassis, right? Whereas seven years ago, if you needed a lot of, you know, horsepower, CPU horsepower, you had to go with these huge, gigantic, like four or five U chassis. Um, now you can get a ton of compute in a very small space that obviously extends, you know, down to client uses as well, right? You've got ultrabooks, you've got really, really thin notebooks with tons of compute, you know, enough CPU power for a lot of folks, but you don't really have mass storage. You don't really have good external high-speed storage. So Thunderbolt solves that, right? You have one cable that provides display and you know really, really high-speed PCI Express. And the idea is that you know, you've got your notebook that's really light, great battery life, great portability. You bring it home to your desk, plug it in, you know, connects to a much bigger monitor, and you've got terabytes of storage that you can access at, at hundreds of megs per second. Um, so that's the promise, right? But they just... There have been so many teething <laughs> pains, right? Like it's, you know, I was I was telling these guys earlier that uh, I, I took a, a Samsung SSD 830, a 512 gig drive that I had laying around, um, and I just stuck it in the Pegasus, and and I was like, hey, this will be my, I'm gonna try this as my time machine backup for a while, um, and all it did, it just made my system completely unstable, right? Like hard locks regularly, um, and, and it's just this stuff is. Not one, not validated well against SSDs, right? Because everyone's still shipping, you know, even the Pegasus goes up to like, what, over $2,000, but that's still a hard drive only configuration. Um, and then, you know, they don't really do all that much validation with, hey, what happens if you just throw SSDs into the chassis? Because it's not a BYOD, right? You still have to buy it with the hard drives. Um, and then there are all the problems with, there's no QoS support over Thunderbolt, right? So yeah. like... All yeah. traffic just shares. It's it's terrible. And, but Brian, you and, and you know that's not even talking about the how ridiculously expensive it is still. Um, yeah, you pay a premium, and then it's like, well, maybe it maybe it will work if I put SSDs in. Yeah, you know, it's. Of course, but you, you're you're not the normal customer, right? You're, that's true. The 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 mo that you have is that you need to put an SSD in everything. Yes, right? that is one hundred percent accurate. Otherwise, there's no point in going to Thunderbolt. Like, there's all that bandwidth, so ostensibly we want to use it. Well, so I like I, I know a guy who you know he has like a 13 inch MacBook Air, and he has like the the 12 terabyte Pegasus. Oh and, man! Wow. But he just uses it for iPhoto. Like he just he, I think that's what they test for, right? The guy that has a huh. 10 terabyte iPhoto library or whatever. Um, or people doing like recording your studio thing. I feel like that's always been the like sort of dream use case for all yes. these things is they have this vision of some studio using this huge raid with a with a MacBook. Yeah. And then Thunderbolt over to it. I mean the thing you is know? you can do that, right? Like it's it's amazing. I, I knew a photographer um just a couple of years ago, right? And and his um his office was outfitted with these Mac Pros. 
um, like the old core two, maybe the first generation, honestly, Intel Mac pros. And when I told him that like the Mac mini, you know, the, the Sandy Ridge based Mac mini was faster than that. It's just like, it was mind blowing, right? Like he just didn't, didn't fathom that that was the case. Uh huh. Well, I, that's I guess just, that's just how, how badly updated the Mac pro is, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> But so on on the Thunderbolt side, how is the you you reviewed the the Buffalo? What's yeah. the official name of it? What's the what of it? What's the official name of it? Oh, it's like the Buffalo Mini Station Thunderbolt, and then there's a bunch of characters, and one one is five hundred. It's got five hundred G in the name, and the other one has one PB in the name. And how is and that running for you? Yeah, I mean, like honestly, I think I think that's sort of the drive everybody was waiting for. You know, it's just it's simple, one disc. It's got Thunderbolt. It doesn't have pass-through functionality, um, and it's it's priced reasonably. You know, like when I, I know everybody was like, "This is a lot of money for a 500 gig external or a one terabyte external." I believe it's like 199. But I mean, when you look in comparison, but it's 199 with a cable, right? Other Thunderbolt devices or, or like peripherals. This is like the cheapest that they get, and at the same time, you can jimmy the thing open and toss in an ssd and then take full advantage of that bandwidth so i but, mean i i definitely like it but it's it's um 199 with the thunderbolt cable right yeah and the thunderbolt cable is like 50 bucks otherwise so i mean really it's it's not that expensive at all yeah now is that a three 50. meter thunderbolt cable or a 1.5 meter thunderbolt cable it's a shorter one i think it was some weird distance it was like um i have it in inches somewhere I could probably find out. It's it's not it wasn't super long, but I mean it's like long enough, you know, okay. to sort of get, you know, I don't know. I've never been want for like huge cables, especially with you know that's sort of like a portable drive, I guess. So I guess their argument would be, it's going to be right next to the the computer for most of its life. Yeah, you know? I agree with that. And it's it's entirely bus powered, right? Yeah, that's right. And even over USB, it's it's also bus powered. Which is that's great. A, that's you awesome. Know, like even um, either USB two or three point worked worked fine. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah, the cables are expensive because they're it's it's an active cable, right? Like it's not it's not a passive cable, and then it's not optical either, you know. And like the promise with optical was always, it's it's like single it's multi mode plastic fiber, aka a toss link cable, you know, and then maybe two more pins so you can make bus power and you just don't yeah i don't know how you can get any cheaper than that right yeah that's true well we're supposed to aren't we supposed to get optical thunderbolt by the end of the year i thought optical thunderbolt was 2013 really yeah that's that's what i thought too i don't know i mean i don't know know. i I was Um, promised initially that it would be optical right so yeah that's true (laughs) but didn't um no, I guess I, we we haven't seen we've seen the tech demos of it being optical, but we haven't yes. seen uh, uh, any any actual product. Well, and I, I feel like a lot of that is because they want to go to silicon photonics, and they want they want it to be all silicon. You know, they want to make uh, a silicon laser and just everything silicon instead of you know traditional gallium arsenide or some other semiconductor with the right band gap, and then um, uh, like basically the other ones were just vex cells. So it wasn't like anything special, I guess. Yeah. And now they want to they want to do something fancy. So I mean, maybe maybe they held out, and we'll see. You know, right? It's it's more economical this way. But you're still gonna have to have a transceiver 
right? Like there's going to be a transceiver to go from your electrical to optical, and then yes. you've got an old peripheral back to electrical. But if you have a new peripheral, maybe it's still optical. I mean, I, I don't know what the implementation is going to look like, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but but I feel like even if they, they stick on the, the current path with, with copper cables, um, there has to be a way to get that pricing down, right? Even though it is an active cable. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about what that controller costs. Yeah. And one, one of the other things that I heard was that there are now two suppliers of the cable. I'm not sure whether that means there are two suppliers of the controller, that Genom controller that's Thunderbolt specific. Yeah. Or if there are two cablers, because those are very different things. They are. I have one of the non-Apple cables. Um, ah. I, I guess it's from StarTech or something. Huh. Yeah, that um, sounds right. Yeah, StarTech yeah is I, I have one, and it's a really long one. Um, it's probably twice the length of the, the standard Apple cable. Um, and I've been testing it for a couple months now, and it, it works. Um, but then again, like when I run into Thunderbolt issues, I don't know if it's the cable or if it's just this is how Thunderbolt is. Yeah. Right? Like that's the frustrating <laughs> part about it. Well, I mean, um, I guess you could, you could swap it out for a normal cable and then test again, right? But... I mean, but there are issues then. in both situations. Right? Like it's it's impossible to tell. I mean, admittedly, I think with um, Cactus Ridge based platforms, the issues seem to be less pronounced. Uh huh. Um, and and you know the I software stack has gotten a lot better. Um, so all of this plays into it, I guess. You know what really stuck out at me is the fact that the, the connectors at both sides get warm, like yes. noticeably warm. Like, I know you talked about it, and it's in there, but I didn't fully appreciate it until I was, you know, like, maxing out a Vertex 3 and then feeling the cable. <laughs> and, like, this is this is getting notably warm. Yes, it, it is very disconcerting, right? Like, <laughs> yes. it's, um, it kind of makes sense because you're doing a ton of performance over there. Um, yeah, sure. And, and it is an active cable. But, uh, yeah, it is because you're not used to feeling that, right? When you touch a USB, it's not like that. It's very off-putting, like yes. in just a, a way that you can't you can't experience until you've experienced it. That's true. That's true. But none. I haven't had any cables melt yet. I mean, oh, goodness, yeah, I hope good. they're not melting. It's, it's gonna happen though, you know, right? Like it's gotta happen. Just by observing it, you've now made it happen somewhere. That's true. That's a very powerful ability. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is there anything else we want to rant on before we get on topic? Um, not not about Thunderbolt. I don't know. I. I Honestly, I found the gigabit uh, Thunderbolt adapter kind of interesting. You know, I don't know well, if anybody's played with that. Um, yeah, I, I briefly played with one. Why, why do you find it so interesting? Other than it, it, you know, enables gigabit Ethernet on all the Macs that don't have it now. <laughs> because of that, there's no, there's no Thunderbolt controller in the end of the cable on that one. It's just like it's PCIe over the whole thing. Oh, yeah. That, so that did puzzle me, right? Because yeah, I, I thought too. Thunderbolt was muxed. Right. So like if yeah. you sit there and you like examine the signal at the end of a cable, you shouldn't just be able to get PCIe out of it. Well, has anyone yeah. confirmed whether the uh, Thunderbolt PC or the Thunderbolt gigabit adapter actually works at the end of a Thunderbolt chain? Or does it only work when directly plugged into a Mac? That's a good question, too. I would assume that the controller at the endpoint can also do the thing where it, it demuxes PCIe and then it's somehow just PCIe. Interesting. So it would have to somehow tell the the thing before it 
in the chain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it has that signaling. Like you saw the the PDF that I sent. Like, yeah, that's I mean, true. Uh, I don't know. I just found that interesting. It's definitely not the implementation that I expected. No, no, me neither. But I mean, I guess that's how they had to hit that. What is it? It's thirty bucks, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to try it. I mean, even though I don't, I don't. I have gig. I have gigabit already. Like, <laughs> you don't like need a, for it. Yeah, like um, I don't need the port. It, um, no, that is really interesting. It, it's um, it's kind of cool, right? Because then effectively you just have a PCI Express port on your notebook. Exactly. Yeah. Although apparently, if you run under Linux, there are still some weird issues. I'm not sure about. Interesting. Um, oh, so I am uh, OWC sending a um, uh, a PCIe like an external PCIe chassis. Oh, really? Yeah. Like dump a, whatever you want into it next week. I think. Really? I mean, we're talking something suitable for putting a video card in, or? Um. So no video cards are on their official compatibility list. Um. But but you're I mean, gonna it's, do it's, it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm gonna put a video yeah. card in it, right? Like, I'm curious to see how that that works um i mean presumably it should just work as long as you have driver support under os 10 correct um and then i you know obviously i'll play with it under windows and see what happens there um they're kind of billing it as a way for you to use a pci express ssd um interesting that's kind of that's interesting i mean it's i like it because it's an easy way for me to saturate thunderbolt right because right now i have to build some frankenstein array of ssds and like tether as much stuff together as possible to max it out but with a good pci express ssd i don't it's just that one card has anybody pushed it to the limits yet has anybody ever pushed thunderbolt to that 10 gigabits um i think we uh we've gotten very close yeah i think we got as far as anyone has um interesting right so we want to see it break (laughs) <laughs> you got to see the failure mode <laughs> i mean the highest we got was was uh eight gigabit around that eventually eventually you're gonna make thunderbolt break though i know it's gonna happen you're, you're gonna do it see i don't think I, like i think i've already made it break right like the whole dropping packets of like usb oh, and, yeah. and audio. audio traffic I, yeah that's that's magical that's just not good <laughs> um so uh OS 10 8 uh 10.8.1 came out. That's and, right. Um I'm hoping that it fixes a lot of stuff. Oh, are we are we going to go a rant about QuickSync? Can we yes. please? Yes, yes, I have to talk about QuickSync. <laughs> yes. Oh, this I is don't for, for why is no readers, one else you, as upset knows. about QuickSync not being used all over the place as I am? I don't think exactly. very many people realize its true capabilities. So it's Dustin, sorry, readers, go ahead. For readers, you need to realize that Anand daily complains about how <laughs> OS X does not use QuickSync at all. Like, well, okay. So actually, so I remember somebody. On, I, say I remember that. somebody on Twitter was like, "Have you have you used ten point eight or something?" And I saw your response, and it was just, "No, QuickSync is not used." <laughs> well, so okay, QuickSync is technically used in. Yeah. Um, uh, Apple's wireless display stuff, so it's supported in AirPlay, yes. um, and it's also technically used in FaceTime. But yeah. and and the feature list for Mountain Lion says that uh, it is supported in QuickTime for exporting using the standard HD profiles. But exactly. Yeah, I can't make it happen. Like I don't know what I'm doing wrong, and 
I can't no make one, it happen either. Yeah, I haven't tried it on 10.8.1 to see if that fixes things. But and, and it's so it's like horribly disappointing that it's not supported anywhere in OS 10. Um, because like that's the you know of all the companies to have a, a huge need for it, it's Apple, right? Apple was the you know they they effectively said, hey, our mainstream Mac is the MacBook Air, which I thought was a pretty bold statement, right? They yeah. went ultra portable as the mainstream solution, which, you know, you go back seven years ago and that would have been unheard of. Um, yeah. Well, like it or hate it, they went that direction. Yeah. yeah. But but so, you know, you look at it and say, well, what do you give up if you're a consumer? The one thing you give up versus the pro, you know, if you're just a normal consumer, doesn't care about upgrading on their own, you know, you do give up a lot of video transcode performance. Um and, and QuickSync could totally solve all of that, right? So it seems like of, of all the companies that would be motivated to make as much use of QuickSync as possible, it would be Apple. Um, but we just haven't seen it. And it's weird, even if you look in the PC space, right? So we have some of the, the most frequently used QuickSync apps, at least when I go to, hey, you know, what can I use to, to test QuickSync performance? It's stuff made by ArcSoft and Cyberlink. And, you know, they've gotten better over the years, but that's not like my go-to set of companies right like that's it's bizarre and and whenever i ask intel about this i always like it's always unofficial but the response i always get is well just wait for broadwell right like we're gonna have some really cool stuff there and then no one will be able to (laughs) not use it but it's absurd what do they mean by that they mean better um quality better psnr or yeah so i think i think by the time we get to broadwell um you will be able to do whatever quick sync in broadwell is um we'll be able to deliver quality identical to the x86 software path wow that's a bold promise yeah but i don't care right like this is our second (laughs) generation of quicksync i want it now and and i think it's uh, i don't know i mean obviously so intel has the intel media sdk so everyone on the windows side can uh presumably just implement it um but there is no media sdk for os 10 and neither side apple nor intel will tell me why that's the case well i feel like the answer is is i mean you can speculate and pretty much just guess that apple feels that quality isn't there right that would be my assumption too yeah yeah and i think for some i think the reason that we don't see it sometimes is because we're not using the correct source like they have they must have a list of sources you know like these insert parameters for the video profile will get the quick sync code path whereas these other ones will just do in software yeah right and it's weird because even using just iphone video like i just recorded some iphone video which is like baseline 24 megabits so it's like not that great of an encoder yeah and then you go and and encode to 720p using their preset and it just seems to be all cpu like just 100 percent yeah i don't i don't know what the uh like what special input because like quicksync yeah i mean it's it's built around h264 right like that's that's an accepted valid input for it yes Um, but uh i don't know that that's really frustrating um and and i don't like that the answer is well in a couple years it'll be awesome um like i i guess i don't know i can maybe it's a test of my patience well i mean it's that way for most intel technologies no i mean quicksync at launch right had software support I, again, admittedly, it was like from Cyberlink and ArcSoft. Mm-hmm. Who had been probably, you know, they were partners of some kind. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, those applications aren't that great either. 
right? Like there's no, uh, you know, Ganesh uh, from our team, he was giving me a hard time because my benchmark where I take a Blu-ray source and transcode it, you can't actually do that in a good way using any of the publicly available tools, right? Because it won't, um, it won't take like a DTS audio source yeah. and transcode that to anything. Um, I, I don't really care because I'm using it as a, as a proof point for video performance, but uh, like my benchmark output file has no audio. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's still frustrating, you know, even on the Windows side. Um speaking of which, we we shouldn't just beat up on Apple. Um so Windows 8 is happening soon. Um and That's and, an interesting topic. Now, <laughs> now we can beat up on Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's Oh, do you see they have a new logo out today based on Windows yeah. 8? Yeah, yeah, squares. I don't I don't understand the like I don't really care so much about the logo side of the discussion, right? Like I I'm glad that they're spending money on marketing or something, I guess. But no, um, well, that's an important thing, though, right? Like, the the logos are now one hundred percent all metro styled, right? Like everything you is can't a call tile. it metro it's anymore. It's now a tile on Windows Phone seven point five, Windows Phone eight, the Xbox interface, Windows eight desktop, Windows eight server, like Windows RT. It's it's tiles everywhere. So them moving to Microsoft and then our our logo, the window iconic thing, is now a tile. Right, like before, it was it was actually a window. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, I, I guess it does it does promise unification. Although I'm guessing that the tiled UI is not a part of Server Eight. It is. Is it? It is. It is. Yeah. yeah you get the start screen in Server Eight, just like you do Desktop Eight. Are you kidding me? No. So no. I haven't actually looked into this. Wait, what's the? Hold on. What? Uh, why? <laughs> what's the? Is there a point to that? Consistency, um, I guess. That they're using the tiles everywhere else. Because wow. we don't want to confuse people. No, but so, okay, I mean, Brian, you were actually the first person that, that kind of brought this up, right? Um, or the first person I'd ever heard um, heard oh, articulate. <laughs> what, what was it? Well, I mean, you, you pointed out, right, so I, I don't actually hate Windows 8, right? I think Windows 8 is, you know, for years, Microsoft gave us tablets running a desktop OS, and they failed. Uh, yes. They didn't just fail because the hardware was terrible, but they failed because uh, you had a you know a, a desktop UI on a tablet. Um, with Media Center, Microsoft realized that hey, if you're going to have a different usage model, you need a different UI, um, and and that's why you know no one really hated Media Center, um, but sure. like they did tablets at least. Um, but here, the one thing you pointed out is is Microsoft's making the same mistake in reverse, right? So yeah. they're giving us a tablet UI for tablets, which is awesome, but a tablet UI for desktops, which yeah. is the same problem as before, just in reverse. Yeah, this is my big thesis. And it was even the same um, desktop UI on the phone, right? With Windows Mobile and um, <clears throat> Windows Phone 2003 and etc that like literally there was a start menu on your phone yes that you would tap on and there was like a close button that was like the close button but yeah now they're making the the opposite mistake which is you know you can't have one at least this is my theory you you can't have one ui that has more than two input paradigms right like there are three or four now if you do your if you're counting so there's, I mean, you, you you don't even need to run Windows 8 to know this. You can just fire up an Xbox. Like on the Xbox, the input paradigms are now the controller. So up, down, left, right, A, B buttons, and then connect. So like waving your arms around and then voice, right? Which is, I need to read things off of the screen. And then my input selections get made based on voice recognition. 
And basically, they've done that because that lowers the subspace of what their voice recognition software needs to recognize by only having these words that are on the screen. Yeah. I mean, and so, like, you see these caveats made everywhere. Like, if you go on the Netflix, like, when that launched, everybody was like, well, what's so bad about this? Well, if you go on the Netflix application and you launch a show, it immediately starts playing the episode that's next in your queue. And a lot of people were like, well, that's done because Netflix wants to get paid money because they want inadvertent plays like, you know, conspiracy theory stuff. No, that's not the reason at all. The reason is because it would be one more input gesture or one more more input voice command to do such, right? But if I have a controller, I want to make the correct selection. So like you can see if you just extend that, the caveats that needed to be made in that workflow to the desktop and see what else is going to, you know, make the same, uh, you know, like the same caveats are going to happen in Windows 8 and they already have, right? Like the input paradigms, there are mouse and keyboard, there are touch, and then I believe there's also gestural at some level, right? Yes. So, I mean, you're just, ma yeah. So like now the problem is that there's just too much stuff and you, you can't make caveats for one platform versus the other. And, and everybody's like, well, Apple is making these caveats, right? Like they added Launch Center, right? Or Launchpad, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah but, but that's not true at all. Launchpad. Yeah, that's not true at all. Launchpad is not OS, it's not iOS for desktop Mac, right? It's not at all. They get this, and that's why it's Mac and there's iOS. There's not, there's not just one consolidated input paradigm for, for Mac and iOS, right? So I don't understand why if we're going to march down this path, we need to not like look at all the history that led us to this part, you know. I, I don't know. This is my big long rant that I just like get let off on. No, no. I mean, I think it's a. I think the 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 observation you made to me that I thought was the most astute was when you said this has n this in no way Windows Eight in no way advances the desktop usage paradigm. Yeah, it doesn't. And that's that right there is huge because so I get why Microsoft did it right. I understand that you look at the success of the iPad, the success of uh, of ARM based tablets, and and the predicted success of them going forward. And yeah, you don't want to lose out there, right? Yeah, so, I mean so, it's great as a tablet UI. Like yeah, it's it's by far the best, right? Like iOS doesn't have an answer, Android doesn't have an answer. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I think I think. They did a great job there. The danger here is that you kind of, you stagnate the other side of it, right? The folks who aren't using a touchscreen-based device. Um, and, and maybe the idea is that those folks go away over time, but I, I don't know. There's a lot of them. <laughs> Where would they go away to? I mean, let's Linux. be serious. Linux on the desktop has been yeah. trying to make headway for 13 years now, and it hasn't really gone anywhere. So what do they do? They switch to Mac OS X? Well, so that's the thing, right? Like, I look at I look at Apple's growth, you know, of the Mac over the past, you know, almost two dozen quarters here. That market share is all coming from the PC side, right? And and I get that, you know, maybe in in Apple in Microsoft's eyes, that market share isn't as valuable just yet. But uh, I see this as a problem, right? Like, it's it's oh, it is a problem, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a very big problem. And Sorry. what's the solution? No, 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 I mean, that's, I, I, I it's just, I'm taking I it in. Else. Right? Uh, yeah, it's just like, I don't know. The big, I think people, I think Linux is a desktop. I mean, obviously that failed because there were alternatives, right? They were easier. At, at some point, 
what's going to happen is that all the alternatives go away and there's nothing left. And yes. if Windows goes this way and <clears throat> let's say they stop selling Windows 7 because like people acting like there's this is a nightmarish doomsday thing, that's not true, right? Like you can still run Windows 7. So just just don't run Windows 8 on your desktop. You don't want to. But I mean nobody's making you. But if, when that goes away, right? Then Linux on the desktop will emerge, right, as a player, just out of necessity. Yeah. And then all the rest of the pieces of that puzzle, you know, like, which is a mess right now, like, like Ubuntu, Ubuntu, I stopped, like, at uh, 10.04, whatever that last long-term support one was before they added, um, what is it, Unity? I can't remember yeah, the Unity. name. Yeah, I just can't stand it. But so, <laughs> any, I mean, like, anyways, all that stuff will fall into place out of necessity, I think. This is my theory. And now you see Valve going, hedging their bets, because... You know the Windows. The Windows marketplace is basically Steam, and there's no APIs for adding a store of that kind. And yeah, I think everybody's in this sort of reactionary mode, or maybe not so reactionary. Like they know they knew it was going on because they've been working on this for a while, right? So it's not a surprise to anybody, I don't think. Uh, you know, as the resident OS junkie, I think people are having a little too much panicking about Windows 8. Uh, yeah, Metro doesn't work very well with a mouse and a keyboard. Uh, but you know what? It's not a bad operating system, despite that. I'm no, no, I, probably so, so, not yeah, going I to upgrade to it in any rush. I'm still on Windows 7. I have a copy of Windows 8. It's not really pressing me after having to deal with Metro. But otherwise, it does everything it needs to. And quite frankly, if you don't like Metro, go install Classic Shell, and bam, Metro goes away. So, hmm. and and that's why the, the part of Brian's observation that I focused on wasn't that, hey, I don't, I don't like Metro on the desktop. It's that it does nothing to advance the desktop usage paradigm, right? And, and that's my bigger concern, that there's this whole huge group of OEMs and users and folks who actively partake in that type of a usage model, and Microsoft is doing nothing to advance it. Um, and, and just as we saw with, with Vista and with, you know, even the transition into Windows 7, it's ultimately the OEMs that supply the motherboards, the PCs, the notebooks, you know, all of the stuff that goes in there. If Microsoft doesn't deliver an advancement in some area, those OEMs all suffer, right? Because what are they going to do? Yeah. yeah, they can't really, I mean, I don't know what their licensing situation looks like, but they can't very well just continue licensing 7, can they? Actually, no, I mean, they it's... can't. It's called downgrade rights. They can oh, just cool. license Windows 8 uh, Pro and then execute the downgrade rights to install Windows 7 or Windows Vista on uh, any machines they sell. But it doesn't matter. No OEM will ever sell an older a machine shipping an older piece of software, right? Like it's. Oh no, they totally do. They OEM sold Windows XP God, it, for years after Vista's launch. But you're talking uh, mostly into like corporations and enterprise. Yes, corporations and enterprises, yeah. not consumer. But in the consumer space, that's not going to happen, right? Like it's it's and the solution again. I don't believe that Windows 8 fundamentally takes a step backwards, right? But it doesn't take a step forwards, right? And, yeah. and if you're an OEM who can't sell, let's say you can't sell PCs over a thousand dollars because you know, that market goes to Apple, then you need Microsoft to be helping you here, right? You need to have some sort of advantage 
um, uh, other than, you know, above and beyond what we've already had with, you know, uh, on the PC side, having kind of a, a more robust gaming ecosystem, a lot of other stuff like that. Um, but, but Microsoft isn't in a spot where you can just kind of not advance things and be okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I want Windows 8 to be successful. I think I'm, I really agree with Ryan that as an OS, like without the UI stuff on top, it's very much an improvement, right? Like the kernel's better. There are a lot of new features that are better. Dude, I'm in right? love with Explorer the task manager. That new task yeah, manager task is manager totally is awesome. awesome. Right? But I, I just like want, I want, I want the new interface, no Metro. Just give me that, right? Like just, you know, make a, make one small little, you know, sacrifice and just give me that for the yeah. desktop instead of the Metro thing with the hotkeys and I mean, hot corners and all this other stuff that just it feels like it's you know and you know it is it's from it's from a tablet and then it's sort of like ported in yeah and and that's that dirty word but that's that's what it that's what it ultimately comes down to so do you feel that um i mean you know some folks are talking about well okay everyone gets a touch screen at some point um does that solve this i think they want that to solve it does right. it actually like if you had if all of your computing devices had touch screens, would you have the mm. same complaint? <laughs> I would I'm not. The same I'm not going to reach out and touch my for, display. Yeah, I'm with Brian here. I'm not reaching out and touching a 24 inch display. Yeah, I, 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 I probably happen. agree there. Um, okay. I mean, but at the same time, you know, I, there was this promise, like you know, early 2000s, like 2006, Jeff Hahn. All of his gestures, perceptive pixel, all that stuff happened. Like people started to get this realization that multi-touch was the future, and like human, you know, these gestural interfaces were going to take over. And there was this this set of all these cool gestures that we were going to use to do computing. And it was like it literally was Minority Report. Like Minority Report licensed a subset of those, you know. And then maybe that's starting to come to fruition here, and we're pushing back because we like the mouse and keyboard. You know, like maybe I should be touching my display. I, I just have really mixed feelings about this. Yeah. Right. Like I feel like it's most it's most efficient for me to use a mouse and keyboard right now, and obviously for text input, I don't think the keyboard is gonna lose to a, a multi-touch like display that's in front of me. Yeah. Anytime soon. But at the same time, yeah, I'm a huge fan of this like this dream of having like a big 30 or 40 inch surface with all of you know the jeff Hahn gestures and then i use that right but not this thing where i can have one or two windows open and like a couple tile sizes and i need to slide in from the left and right to get to my (laughs) menu you know like i sound like like we're just ripping on them but these are like actual problems yes no i mean so let's switch gears then though right the things that are problems on the desktop or in a traditional notebook usage model um, those are actually like godsends in the tablet space, right? The the ability to see two things at once. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. huge. You know, I, I've been playing with the um, the Galaxy Note ten point one, which has gotten pretty harshly treated yeah. in the press thus far. What did you think um, of that? I'm interested to read your review. Yeah, it, it's it's. It, you know, I, I think um, Engadget put it best, right? When when uh, they they said something about how. It's really a very niche product. Um, and, and actually, I agree with that completely. I think it's, uh, 
likely not. So one of the issues, you know, everyone talks about uh, on the Galaxy Note, you know, Samsung has this mode where if you have two Samsung apps uh, and if they're the right apps, so Samsung's email client plus Samsung's web browser, for example, um, you can actually display them side by side. Um, but one of the major complaints is that switching between the two, so scrolling up and down on a web page and then, you know, clicking on an email or, or, or tapping on an email, that that's sluggish and, and has a high latency to respond. So in my testing, at least, it seems like there are two things happening here. One, the display itself, uh, the, the touchscreen itself isn't very good, right? So there, there are oh. a lot of times when I'm just doing one task and, and you know, the, the touching doesn't respond as nicely as it should. Um, the other thing is when you're running in the side-by-side mode, it appears that you have to actually tap inside the window to shift focus to it before yeah. you can start gesturing in it. That's what I saw too, yeah. <clears throat> right? And and if you assume that you can just use it like you would any other you know full-screen tablet app where you just start scrolling and it starts receiving input, then you're going to feel like the thing is just horribly unresponsive. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, I'm curious about whether... Um, you can continue having one of the multi-screen because they they have that weird multi-screen name. One of the multi-screen apps do they remain active while the other one is actually going? Like if I if I bring up a web browser and I have some JavaScript going, and then I bring up in the other multi-screen email, does the JavaScript keep running in the browser? Right. That's yeah. That's actually a really good test. I I'll, I'll I need to play with that. Because um, that'll tell you how they're hacking it together or what what they're doing. Yeah. But this is what I mean when I say there's no answer from iOS or Android to the Windows 8 multi-screen docking, you know, like snap snap screen use paradigm. Yes. Right. And this is like Samsung has hacked it in, and everybody's gonna trash it because it isn't perfect. But it's like, well, they hacked it in, right? Like there it yeah. is. It no, sort and, of works. <laughs> And that's the thing. It, it, it isn't perfect, but you can't... And, and this is a conversation I actually had with one of our editors at one point, which is you can't, on the one hand, demand innovation and penalize for people not innovating. And then, at the other hand, just kind of punish people for innovating, right? Like, yeah. It's, yeah I'm yeah. not saying you have to go out and buy this, but credit where it's due, right? Samsung is at least doing something that, honestly, Google should have done with Jelly Bean. Yeah, and I expected that functionality. Like, it, it honestly was kind of surprising not seeing sort of a multi-window manager or something like that, you know, like dock. You know, like the use case, I don't know what your use case is, but I like to sit with the browser open and then Twitter on the, like, far right a quarter of the display. And when, when I saw, you know, like with Ryan at Build that you could do that, that was sort of like a yes, this is exactly what I want moment. But it's still not there on Android, right? Like, I have to go close out, and it's, and it's still not there on iOS, right? Like, I have this. There was there was that one. There was one application that like hacked it together, but it was it was just one application with two sort of tasks going on at the same time on iOS a long time ago. Yeah, and and, and so I I agree. It's it's for me. It's browsing the web and some sort of communication. Right, whether it's an IM or a tweet or email, like it's some sort of, yeah. hey, I'm actively talking to someone, but I'm still researching or reading or editing or something like that. Um, it's the I and the O, right? Like you need to do both at the same time. Like just people <laughs> IO, right? Like just deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I think I think Windows 8 on the tablet side really addresses that, right? And and I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, 
the one aspect of it I'm not excited about is I feel like that demands a really high res screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at least the entry level Windows 8 or Windows RT tablets are all what they're like 13 by 7. Yeah, it has to be. You can't have Metro applications without 13 by 7. Yeah, but I, I guess my point is this whole side by side thing. Um, they're not I, high DPI, is what yeah, you're saying. Exactly. I, I want to see that. Um, and I think that's that's one of the only things that I'm kind of disappointed about um, with Windows 8 and Windows RT. Yeah, I'm disappointed about that too. But well, I'm glad really we're not calling it Retina system, Or is that a problem with the hardware? Because we've seen what it takes to drive one of those high DPI screens. Unless you've got an SGX 543 MP4. Yeah, but and this is like Microsoft is known interfaces? this is... Sorry, go ahead. And four 32-bit memory interfaces? Yeah. And two... Sorry, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, Brian, you're usually one of the first to point this out, right? Whenever there is this type of discrepancy, right, where we are clearly like a generation behind in hardware, yes. you always point out that it's a clear indication of how long the dev cycle was in, you know, getting this to market. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can tell immediately what, like, what era this is competing in. Yes. It's sort of like every general wants to fight the previous war, you know? Yeah. Like... You know, like we need to be building battleships, you know, even though it's like we have missiles now, like your <laughs> battleships will be gone immediately. Yeah. But it's like same thing. It's like, well, we need to have like cool icons and apps and stuff. But it's like, well, everybody else is like talking about high DPI now. So build a framework that gives me high DPI without, yeah. you know, without interpolating or anything. I think uh, the assumption probably was that, um, this year's iPad wouldn't have that ultra high res display. And yeah, and obviously they made this prediction, whatever, you know, more than 12 months ago. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where they're kind of fighting. A, a, that, that's why it appears that they're, they're late to this battle. Now, um, keep in mind, the operating system itself is high DPI ready. I mean, ever since day one, uh, Brian and I were sitting in a, a build session that we're talking about DPI and what your icon size should be and whatnot. They've been telling developers since day one to prepare material for high DPI. The operating system is ready for it. It's just a matter of where's the hardware. But see, I would assume that Microsoft similarly would be telling the hardware guys, hey, we need this, right? Hmm. I mean, I, I guess, well, what is Asus is able to drive 19 by 12. That's pretty high, you know. It is so pretty high. I feel high. like the hardware is there. I think it's just, for whatever reason, the launch hardware you know, is sort of been specced out forever as this reference. And for some reason, Microsoft is in love with 13 by seven. It's like the worst number ever. It's like 1366, right? And when, and that number, so like, and they, the way that they selected that too, remember it was just purely by, this is a function of, this is what everybody has. Like this is the the median in our data or, you know, there, there are the most of these displays out there, right? So it wasn't like this is a nice number. Exactly. And, and the thing is, scratch. all of the displays that were out there that had that resolution were terrible displays yeah. anyways. They were terrible notebook displays, right? Yeah. But it, so, it, it, no, it's it's a problem, right? Because it's, you know, you need that integer DPI scaling, right? So whatever, um, you know, 19 by 12 is a good kind of intermediate resolution, but it has to be higher than that because you're, you're still going to get, you know, you'll get... Everything will be sized as if it were at half the res. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, that, I mean, that, it's not perfect. Yeah, that part's unfortunate. But I mean, it, it's. I mean, it's clearly the good thing is it's a hardware limitation. Um, you know, the OS whenever whenever the hardware comes around, um, you know, we'll be able to take advantage of it. The bad thing is, you kind of know if you go out and you buy a Windows Eight, Windows RT tablet you know that something better is coming out next year and something better in a very, very tangible way. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we're back to that guidance where you don't buy the first, you know, of anything, really. Yeah, but the thing is, people have to support this, right? Like, it's yeah. going to be really bad if this doesn't get support initially. Yeah, I think from a tablet perspective, yeah, Windows 8 is, is awesome in terms of functionality still. are you? There needs to be great hardware. Are you excited about um, Windows 8 tablets? Like, would you would you use one? Who, me? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I would, yeah. I mean, so the thing that you have to keep in mind about me is that I used the, you know, Windows 7 tablet for all of college, like all of undergrad, and a year before that, too. So I, I, went, I had a Q1, Samsung Q1 UMPC, Q1 Ultra, and then I went to a Latitude XT that I used for, like, the remainder so, you know, like I was in the trenches literally <laughs> 24 hours a day with this like tablet interface that was Windows 7 and I survived, right? So it's it's not like you can't, I feel like everybody that was like, oh, well, you can't, you can't survive there. Like, it's just not going to work. It, it did work. Like it does work. It takes, it's not, it's not for your normal user, but it works. And for me, the thing has always been, I want an active digitizer. I want to be able to take notes. I want to write fast. Like I write fast when yeah. I'm writing equations. And there's always that lag. Like even the Galaxy Note, or I'm sure maybe on this other one, even though it has a Wacom active digitizer. No, on the 10.1, if you're trying to write, it, it's, it's laggy. Huh. I mean, I'm, like ultimately the test is like sit in a lecture where you're doing math and like try to take notes, right? Like that. Yeah. That for me, like uh, you know, does it? Can I write? Like, are my are my equations going to be completely illegible? <laughs> you know, and that was always the issue that I had. And if if there's a tablet out there that is like that, that has the active digitizer, and run win, runs Windows 8, and and OneNote continues to be this shining beacon of awesome, which it was, and still is, and I believe still is in Office 2013, then sure I would use one. Okay. But so what if, I mean, as far as I know, none of the launch devices that, that we know about have the active digitizer. Yeah, which makes me very, very, very sad. So given that, that that's the reality, Windows 8 tablet still interesting for you? Hmm. I don't, I don't know. That's hard. That's hard. I mean, personally, I don't, I don't, I'm not a good tablet user. Yeah. Like at all. So, you know, like iPad 1 sat in the corner, iPad 2 sat in the corner. <laughs> Uh, I didn't buy an iPad 3 because I was like, this is just like a huge SOC that gets hot. And, yeah. you know, it looks, it looks pretty, but it's not going to do anything than the other, anything better than the iPad 2 did for me. Yeah. And then I used the 10.1 LE, even though that was like terrible because it was always losing its mind and, <laughs> and just erasing itself. Literally no joke. And then I like the 7 because it's small, like the 10 inch form factor is never something that I'm going to carry under my arm like into a cafe, right? Like I'm going to bring my backpack and if I'm bringing my backpack or like my, my man bag, then I'm going to just, I'm just going to bring a notebook, right? Like why not? Yeah. I, so I'm just a terrible tablet user apparently. But so the thing about Windows 8 and Windows RT is that you could bring a notebook 
um, that just happens to be a good tablet as well, right? If you yeah, look at the yeah. ASUS kind of transformer style usage model or, or you know, what Acer's doing uh, with their dockable, you know, it's, a, it's effectively the same form factor. Well, I want it to like fold around like a Latitude XT, you know, like how it, it folded, like it rotated and then it folded. Yeah. Like I want the old tablet form factor. You know, like I know this sounds really dumb and everybody is always ranting about how, oh, Microsoft failed. But, you know, give give credit where credit was due. This was Bill Gates's vision like a decade ago. Right. And the execution wasn't all that bad. And, you know, you know, like we're seeing everybody innovate and it's getting better. And now it's. You know, like you need bigger touch points. You can't shoehorn the the traditional interface into a tablet. But at the same time, I feel like for the equivalent, like getting work done, like I'm I'm taking actual serious notes here, you know, that I'm gonna look at again down, you know, like several hours from now, or like like my use case was always I would export all my lecture PDFs or notes, like print them through OneNote into the document and then I could annotate on top. And this is perfect. Like this is this is the future. Like you're writing, there's no paper involved here. Like I don't need notes. Like I'm just literally writing on top of things. Yeah. And then you can search what you hand wrote and the notes at the same time, right? Like this is, this is magical. So <laughs> if, if, if you can do that in Windows 8 and I'm, I'm thinking about a student use case, then yeah, that's, that's perfect. What's your, um, do you care if it's RT or, or Windows 8 based? Um, if it's the Intel SOC, I don't really care. No. I mean, well, see, everybody leaves so that one out. So Intel wouldn't go into RT, right? I think even the yeah. Atom one is considered um, Windows yeah, yeah, 8. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and see, and everybody leaves that out. They're like, Windows RT, and then they're like, oh, well, there's this weird thing we don't understand that also is Windows 8, right? But it's an SOC in the purest form of the word. Yeah. So, I, you know, like having seen Medfield and, you know, like I haven't seen... Uh, what is it? Is that it's Clover Town, right? Clover Trail. Clover Trail. I keep getting them confused. I don't yeah. know how, but yeah, I would. Well, because it's I, not. I, a, yeah, I don't think it's the it, Intel. I mean, I don't even actually know what's brought over from Medfield in Clover Trail, right? Intel hasn't even done like a, a, a press briefing on it yet. Um, hmm. I mean, for for those of you who you know definitely don't follow this stuff, uh, so for Windows Eight, we have basically the Ivory Bridge um, Ultrabook. SKUs. So all of those, you know, anything that's in the MacBook Air or the ZenBook Prime, all that stuff, uh, you get like really low wattage versions of those that go into Windows 8 tablets. Going up against the ARM stuff, Intel also has, you know, because obviously ARM is, is in the Windows RT-based tablets, Intel has uh, a Windows 8 version of the Medfield SoC that's in like um, you know the the Lava phone and you know the first phones the first x86 Android phones um, and that's Clover Trail so it's a uh, you know it's got that same shared root system with uh, with the Medfield phones that you know the ARM based SoCs that go into tablets and phones have um, and and that just, part it's just is two cores. sorry go ahead. it's just it's just dual core with 544 MP2 yes yeah. Um, well, no, hold on. Is it is, is it five forty four MP two? Yeah. Um, okay, so that'll be good. That's and and what's interesting is, uh, you know, obviously the selling point from Intel's standpoint is if you go with this atom based SOC, um, it'll be performance and power competitive with the ARM based SOCs. 
but you still get full backwards compatibility, right? Because it's x86. So anything you want to run that you would normally run on your notebook can can still run here. Yeah, and I don't see any problem with that. Like, everybody's like, oh, well, it's x86. It must be, like, it has fans, you know? But, it, I mean, it, <clears throat> Medfield and, no doubt, Clover Trail will, I mean, are, are great. Like, they're absolutely competitive, yeah, no. and so that's the interesting thing, right? Like there was this whole yeah, I'm I'm waiting to get our hands on on uh, you know, the best of the best in in the ARM-based Windows RT tablet space and put it up against one of these Clover Trail platforms. Um because you know, neither side has really announced pricing, but the kind of hints that I was getting in Taiwan a couple months ago is that at least initially, Windows RT and Clover Trail-based Windows 8 tablets are going to be identically priced. And mm. the advantages you get are backwards compatibility on the Windows 8 side for, for Atom, and then on the RT side, you get free Office. Um, but, but expect both to be priced very similarly. See, in my mind, I, I put the Windows RT and the Intel SoC Medfield slash... Um, Clover Trail uh, ones in the same camp, like mentally. Like it's, 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 it's like mobile versus like desktop. That's true. And I think that's fair, right? But I guess the assumption was, um, you know, ARM, because the ARM-based SOCs are typically like, what, 14 to $25. Um, and Intel, you know, even not too long ago, Intel was selling Atoms for, for 50 bucks plus. Uh, the assumption was that the ARM stuff would be cheaper, but I think what ends up happening now, Intel hasn't officially announced pricing here, but I, I think Clover Trail ends up being the same price as the ARM-based SOCs. Um, I, I hope it is. Have, do we know pricing for a midfield? I mean, this is 32 nanometers, so it's got to be paid off. Like, it's got to be dirt cheap. Well, right? so that, th this is... Um, you know, th this is like the perfect example of what competition does, right? Like I said, I Intel was selling Atoms for, for above 50 bucks, and there's a, a total price ceiling on how much you can charge for a smartphone. Um, yeah. So that extra like $25 definitely can't be added into the price. And no OEM is going to be willing to just eat that cost to support, you know, Intel. Um, so I think the only answer is that Intel has priced uh, both Medfield and, and Clovertrail, that it's priced them identically with the ARM-based alternatives. Mm, well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, it has to be. Like, if they want to play, ba if they want to do battle and they're serious, then... Yeah, I guess it's sort of a rhetorical question. It has to be priced that way. But that's awesome, right? Like, that's exactly what competition is supposed to do, and it does it. And I don't know. That part makes me really, really happy, <laughs> right? Like, I don't I don't really necessarily care who wins, ARM or Intel, in, in this kind of tablet space. But the fact that both are around and they're kind of driving, you know, ARM is driving Intel's kind of innovation on the, or, or forcing Intel's hand on innovation in the power side um, and to get into these small form factors and, and also, at the same time, driving Intel's costs down. Um, I think that's awesome. I mean, it's effectively the impact AMD had uh, back in the Pentium 4 days, just in a completely different form factor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's sort of analogous. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that we get this now as AMD has kind of let go in terms <laughs> of pressure on the high-end desktop side. Yeah, I think that's another topic. Yeah. Interest. <laughs> um, on the ARM-based SOC side, um, you know, one thing that you know you and I have been talking about quite a bit um, 
is just how this market consolidates, right? So on the on the CPU side, I remember when I first started writing, we had Intel, AMD, Cyrix, um, and I think even IDT. Uh, those are the four major players in the x86 CPU space. Now, Intel obviously still had the lion's share of the market, but you had the, you had four companies making x86 CPUs. Um, and if you you know if you couldn't afford the Intel stuff, you went and you bought a Cyrix or you bought a, an AMD. And, uh, you know, we had competition there, but that, that, that eventually got reduced, right? That got con- consolidated into Intel and AMD and, and, you know, eventually Intel with significant market share. In the ARM-based SOC space, we have six, seven companies. We've got NVIDIA, Qualcomm, TI, Intel, of course, um, STE, Samsung, Samsung Apple. Um, so, so that right there is seven companies. Um, and then there are more like Broadcom is talking about it uh, media tech out of yeah. China right like you you know loosen the search a bit and, and you get 10 folks that are making ARM based SOCs um, and I have to believe that over the next decade that that number doesn't grow that it shrinks uh, because a lot of these folks you know they don't really they they're can't... licensing IP blocks and gluing them together yeah, and they can't all be the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and the, the the cost of this stuff is so low. Again, we're talking fourteen to twenty five bucks for the high end, right? Yes. It's not like you can undercut by all that much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's obviously there will be a huge consolidation. You know, like every that like I think the number we keep tossing around is that there will be a final three. It's kind of like the final five Cylons or something, but it's like the final three will emerge. Yeah. You know, like they were so, here all along. We just didn't know it. So who, and, and this is the thing that, you know, we've always struggled with, like identifying who those final three or four are, right? Because the problem is for, for at least, you know, that top, let's say five to seven, um, you can make good arguments for why they should stick around. Right. So Intel, you know, is, has a lot of money, has a lot of fabs that it needs to keep filled and has a lot of architects that need jobs. So it has all of the right things. And, you know, this is its business. This is what it does. So you can see why they would stick around. Um, NVIDIA has all this like graphics IP that they want to repurpose here. Um, so, so, you know, they obviously have some sort of a competitive advantage there. Um, Qualcomm, they have their own architecture team. So again, they have uh, they have the unique competitive advantage, similar to Intel, in that they they you know design some of this stuff by them by themselves instead of just licensing from ARM. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have you know as you always point out, they have that whole baseband side of it. Um, yes, they have the modem portfolio, which I I mean, which tell is me not I'm... something to be underestimated when you're making a phone. <laughs> I know exactly right. Like if you look at how much Qualcomm has cleaned up here. With the first generation of integrated LTE devices, I, yeah, I mean, it's crazy, right? They're everywhere. You see, eighty nine sixty everywhere. Yeah, so so there's okay. So those are we've already gone through three companies, um, and and we've listed valid reasons why all of them should be around. Uh, but then you get to Samsung again. Samsung has a fab, um, and they need to keep that making stuff. So they have like a huge financial motivation to to stay in the market. Um, Apple, you know, even though Apple only sells to Apple, uh, they have huge motivation as well because they get to, you know, you look at all of the SOC members, uh, all of the SOC players here, 
and all of them had underspecced uh, the graphic side of things. You know, there isn't yeah. a company that Apple could have gone to for the current generation iPad and said, hey, we'll just take this off the shelf part. Sure, yeah. So there's at least a short term motivation for Apple to continue doing it. Um, well, don't, don't you view Apple, at least their SOC side, as somewhat of an extension of Samsung? Like, at least I do mentally, is that <clears throat> there's always been that question of how much RTL reuse is there between an AX SOC and Samsung's SOC. And at the same time, since Apple is sort of carrying the lion's share of that part of the money, you know, like even, even now they're still pouring money into that fab in Austin that you could almost put them under the Samsung umbrella, right? Like sim- similar, I guess, and, and if we're putting chips on the table for here's who's going to remain, you know? Yeah. So there was definitely like huge overlaps in the early days of Apple branding its own SOCs. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel yes. like, you know, the, the past two generations here from Samsung, they've diverged at least on graphics, right? So Samsung now uses ARM-based graphics. Yes, that's true. Yeah, um, and absolutely. I know. I mean, I agree. It's just always there's that question. Yeah. Right. And and there's all this talk internally, like within the industry, about how Apple's looking to TSMC at 20 nanometer, um, and potentially spending quite a bit of money there um, to kind of guarantee capacity. Which would be great, I guess. But then, does everybody else get to reap those benefits as well? I, it depends entirely on how much you pony, pony up, right? Like yeah. it's it's and and that's something that um, you know we've we've also kind of struggled with is you know, we've been talking about this in the eyes of who has the best architecture IP and and who builds the best SOC, but there's this big question of how much does you know owning a fab or having that guaranteed fab capacity how much does that matter? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, because honestly, if you look at if you look at Intel's success against AMD and the competitors, it was really a lot of their fabs is what what won them that war. I think I think that when we look historically at that, that's sort of a function of how fast the you know each process node and you know like each full full shrink was happening. You know, and now now that these gains, I've I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. Now that the gains are exponentially harder, and that each you know like. Each level on the standard, uh, what is it? The standard roadmap is going to get more and more difficult to get to. That that becomes less of a less of a concern. Like, do you see what I'm saying there? But because because that has slowed down so much, that the the lag time is now so large um, that it's not as big of a concern. Like, I, I realize that you could think that it's even more of a concern. Yeah. Right. But if depending on where you are in the cycle, it's less of a concern. Like, it's it's sort of flattened out. Like, it's a long you know, like everybody talks about like the short tail and long tail. Well, this is the long tail now, right? Like there are no easy gains after 28. Yeah, that's know? true. That's very true. I mean, I remember back, you know, way back when, when, when I first started, you, you know, every generation you got a power gain, you got a performance gain and you got a, 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 a die size gain. Yeah. And now, and now it's like, <laughs> yeah, you have to fight for one or two of those, right? It's not, it's not at all easy. Yeah, so I think the I think the, lith, the you know like the lithography is getting harder, and at the same time that's why you see consolidation and everybody like just fabbing things over at you know one foundry or a couple foundry partners. But at at the same time, I think that because that has slowed down, 
that you're not going to see this like sort of this back and forth like we used to see. Interesting. You know, I could be totally wrong, right? Like this is just me armchair sort of squinting at it. No, you're totally right. I mean, we see the same problems uh, in the GPU space with what AMD and NVIDIA have to do to churn out next-generation products. I mean, they've already lost the advantage of the half-node process. Now they have to wait two years for full nodes. And you just take a look at what happened with 28 nanometers. It's a smaller gain in performance at the same wattage than uh, what we saw going from uh, 55 to 40. And that was only technically half a node. Well, so, Ryan, why do you... I assume that the reason that we didn't get that that we stopped getting half nodes was because TSMC wanted to effectively turn up the competitive heat on on the other foundries, right? By by forcing them into either competing with full node jumps and on effectively like an Intel like cadence, that that you kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. My interpretation always has been that uh, TSMC was just having a hard time pushing out a new process every single year, especially with all the problems they had at 40 nanometer. Interesting. I wonder how much, like, which one's the chicken and which one's the egg, right? Because I thought that the the reason they had troubles at 40 was because they tried to aggressively do a full node jump, whereas that should have been a half node. And the motivation behind doing the full node jump at 40 was uh, to really put competitive pressure on, on, well, their competition, right? Because if you're a foundry, you can compete based on kind of outspending and, and having tons of capacity, or you can deliver technology sooner than than the alternatives. Yeah, very true. You know, it's probably one of those things where we'll never really find out the answer, but we can certainly take some educated guesses. Or we'll find out the answer, but it'll be something that we can't talk about publicly. <laughs> that too. <laughs> right? That, like, that usually happens That's to... always a concern. <laughs> That, that that usually seems to be the way it works um so well i think it gets so much harder though like honestly the gain the easy gains have been had right like we're now doing immersion and double patterning and it's you know like extreme uv like what more can you add from there right like i i know that i know what you know what comes next and stuff but it's it's not pleasant right like this isn't this isn't simple no, I, yeah, it, it definitely it stopped being simple quite a while ago. Um, but there, there's like there's still a lot of really cool stuff happening, right? All the all the investment in through silicon vias in um, embedded DRAM, you know, stack DRAM, all of that stuff is really cool. And and those things don't, you know, they're they're technologies that allow you to get huge performance gains without having to just go to the next process node. Um, obviously you still need that next process node to kind of, you know, make this whole market work, but, uh, I don't know. I'm still optimistic that at least for, you know, the next several years here, we'll, we'll, we'll get to see some really cool gains. I mean, just look at the, the transition to 28 gave us a lot of cool things from TSMC. You know, I, I think Brian, you and I were, we're on this kind of broken record yeah. uh, last <laughs> year for the second half of last year, where we were just saying, you know, just wait for Qualcomm, wait for Qualcomm. Don't buy a, a smartphone until 28 hits. Yes. Uh, and I mean, that was just last year, right? Like that was just actually this year. That's that's when that happened. Um, yeah. And that made a lot of people angry. But at the same time, it's true, right? Like, I don't, at least on those devices and, and also on Samsung 32, I, just battery life is way better. Yes. Like there's, that's all you can say about it is that it's way better. And it's it's like, it's not going to be immediately replaced like the 65 
to 45 thing was. Yes. You know, like that went really fast. This is going to be around for a while. I think the thing that people need to realize too when we're talking about phones too is that there's more than just the logic CMOS process. There is also the RF CMOS process and that the RF CMOS process gains are only just now starting to become available. Like for example, BCM4334 for Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, FM, all that good stuff. That's on TSMC 28 RF, right? And and like RF always lags logic, but now we sort of have both at the same time, which is great. And at the same at the same time, we're gonna see the uh, the transceiver go to 28 RF, which is you know like a big thing, and nobody really talks about that. Or I guess that's our job, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's my fault. But you know like the current one is 65 nanometer RF. So, Wait, so they're jumping for for um, Broadcom on on their Wi-Fi transceiver. They're jumping from sixty five to twenty eight. Uh, well, I'm I'm talking the Qualcomm transceiver. Okay. I believe the previous one was forty five. Okay, I believe that's kind of always like sort of nebulous and hard to ring out. I mean, we talked about it. I can't remember forty three thirty. I believe was forty five. Yeah, or, that that's what I thought. That's right. But the transceiver for like your your um, outside of your digital baseband is is uh 65 rtr 8600 i believe is 65 and whereas the new one is 28 rf so you know like these gains are more than just logic it's also going to be gains from you know your rf so yeah. like analog space and so that's kind of interesting because those are the types of now are we how far away are we from seeing all of that stuff integrated, right? Like, isn't that the, the kind of next step there? And so I had a big discussion about this yesterday, actually, about why it's not integrated. And I guess the reason is partly um, both pins, like they need more pins. And I, the other big thing is you want to decouple your improvements in the receiver. And again, that's all on the transceiver. You want to improve, decouple the transceiver from the digital baseband so that when you're when your you know RF gets better, you can quickly pair one with the other. And these, you know, like previously they were integrated. Like if you look at MDM sixty six hundred, which is in um, iPhone four, Verizon, and just like an endless litany of other devices, like yeah. all the droids ever, you know, basically all the Verizon phones, MDM sixty six hundred. That is that is a multi chip package with both the digital baseband and the transceiver all under one package, right? So that's sort of, they moved away from that because apparently they just need more pins with all these radios. Interesting. And Do you have any idea of how many pins we're talking about here? Um, I believe it's in that PDF. I forget off the top of my head. Um, I mean, because the, 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 the packages themselves have to be small. So like pin density has got to be a problem. Yeah, and that's what they were talking about. And, you know, like, that's their argument. I, I think that from a larger larger level, the differentiation with having a different transceiver and a different receiver is the big other, like, probably the bigger driver. You know? Because, you know, like, like it's just different parts of the chain. I mean, ultimately, I believe it will get integrated, right? But it's just, it isn't there yet for whatever reason. Like, we've actually moved away from it. Yeah. So I don't mind if it's not integrated as long as it's built on the same process node. Yeah. Yeah. Right? The, yeah, yeah. the beauty of integration is that it kind of forces that um, at least as long as it's like, you know, single die integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
But again, I don't I don't know how much of these. I, I believe it's a different process entirely. The CMOS versus logic split. You know, like you have mems. Yeah. And you know, like when you're looking through, they're like, these are what we'll sell you in terms of like, here's what we'll do. It's it's different. Yes. And um, I you know, like the analog space is much harder because it's just different than doing logic. You're doing things like you know, you need inductance and like their impedance matching somewhat and you know like there are decoders in there and it's, it's sort of like it, it's analog and then out comes iq data so it's sort of like this that's where all the the wizardry happens right and then yeah then you pipe that into this digital thing and that's sort of like well we just write some software <laughs> and this is why i focused on digital design in in college uh-huh yeah <laughs> Um, it, you know, before we get too far off of the SOC side, um, what, what is the kind of next SOC arm based SOC that you're interested in? Um, well, obviously we've been talking a lot about APQ 8064, the quad core, uh, crate with, uh, Adreno 320. I mean, that's, that's exciting. I think that, um, we've been talking about Qualcomm a lot. So I think the other thing that's exciting is, um, Exynos five quad and a 15, and uh, and then the other big exciting thing is obviously whatever SOC is in the next iDevice, yes. iPhone, um, which we saw the PCB leak, like blurry pictures of, literally pictures of a display showing a blurry picture. <laughs> so like how, how much more meta can you get? <laughs> and and we, we discussed that a bit last time. You know, the, the expectation there is um, 32 nanometer LP from Samsung uh, Cortex A9s running at higher clocks. Um, yeah. and then next year is kind of when everyone moves to a 15. So by the end of this year, we'll have, uh, maybe Samsung might have a device out with a 15 by the end of the year. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And then next year with, uh, and obviously Qualcomm, you know, they, their crate architecture is, is kind of similar to a 15. It's three issue out of order. Um, so, so they're kind of already in that, that category. Um, but they get a, uh, they get an architecture bump next year, right? They're doing a, a different yes. rev of, of the crate architecture. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's crate crate v3 that's coming, that just increases IPC, and then there is also the the crate version that's going to be, um, what is it? It's 28 nanometer, but high K, so higher clocks. Oh, like interesting. And then that'll go into like tablets and stuff, right? Yeah. Although interestingly enough, there have been some parts that have leaked, and I believe it's on their roadmap that. Um, that is high K and it's above two gigahertz and it's quad core. And it also has the baseband from MDM nine X 25, which is the, you know, like the part that's beyond nine X 15. So like nine X 15 is three GPP release, uh, release nine. If you buy the 9215 version of uh, release nine LTE, um, uh, and then, uh, the nine X 25 version is release 10. So LTE advanced. But you know, like, and you see how this is sort of this sort of works, right? Like, eighty nine sixty has the nine x fifteen baseband inside, and then the next whatever SOC will have the nine x twenty five baseband inside. So I gotcha. There's what that one that's analogous, which is like twenty thirteen ish, maybe. That one is interesting. So we'll see. So that might be in like a, a really really high end, you know, no battery life kind of phone. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, or maybe battery life won't be that bad. I mean, I don't know. Like, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have, I have hopes, right? Like, on, again, on a phone, like, just set your governor really conservatively, and you know, you can sort of, you can have good battery life, I guess. 
And then, you know, we can't forget NVIDIA. We have uh, Wayne yes. coming out, um, which I'm guessing, I guess, Kal-El Plus, like that whole thing we were promised, that just didn't happen. I, yeah, where did that go? I want that to happen. Like, that would be interesting, right? I mean, it's, so they never really said whether or not that was going to be a 28 nanometer solution or what, what was going to happen there. I guess we kind of assumed that it would be uh, Tegra 3, but 28 nanometer. Yeah. I mean, I, I was kind of looking forward to that because then we'd have sort of like two quad core, different architecture, same process node, or I guess three, because I mean, Samsung is sort of on the same footing. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, I guess the year's not over yet. Like that could still happen. Um, but at, at this point, uh, I'm kind of, I'm okay with our 2832 options right now. And I just want to see the transition to 815. Well, maybe they'll announce stuff at CES. Like they're holding everything for, for that, you know, like winter time. You know, like that sort of little release window? Yeah. I mean, if, if NVIDIA's cadence continues, we should see Wayne at CES, right? Because that's when yeah. we got Tegra 2 and Tegra 3, didn't we? That's true. You're right. You're right. Or was so Tegra guess... 3 later? No, I thought you were right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's sort of like when it shows up on our radar, like... Yeah, that's true. Official. Well, you know, like, uh, and then there's gray, too. Obviously, gray is really cool. Yes. But gray is not a 15 base, I would assume, right? Isn't no, that a, is... a lower end part? Gray is just like Tegra 3, but with their modem, yes. I believe, isn't it? It's it's just Icira, and it's it's not an Icira LTE thing, I don't think. It's just Icira HSBA Plus with, you know, with Tegra 3. But that's an important so. first step for NVIDIA, right? Getting out that integrated yeah. solution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's interesting, too, because the gray, the gray architecture is, um, um, you know, all, all software-defined radio. Or at least, I guess, the the digital part is software-defined. Um, externally, they still have, like, this, you know, like, hard RF thing that's a transceiver. I guess they announced it. Remember, I wrote that up. It was the ICERA 500. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on that's going to happen. But it's it's interesting in, from the perspective that we're going to see who shakes out. Yes. You know, like, I believe that if you buy an 8960 phone or the Galaxy S3 or something that, like, performance is arguably good enough now, you know, which is, like, it's terrible to be saying that, but it is sort of true. It's good enough on... Well, I'll never say that it's good enough, but it's... it's. I can see why it would be good enough on the current mobile OS platforms. Uh-huh, yeah. Right? Like, it, you know, it's, it's funny. For years there, every subsequent release of... Uh, OS 10 would get faster on hardware, and I felt that every subsequent iOS release would get slower. <laughs> right? Because yeah. like they, they are adding so much more functionality, and and we're kind of already at the limit of what these CPUs can do. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the iPhone side, it's always been like if you're not running the latest one, we don't really care about you. Yes. You know, like things might break, like your mileage may vary. And like everybody that's like, oh, buy a 3GS, it's $0. I'm like, you're just like, that's the worst advice in the world right now. Like, yes. You just couldn't advise worse. But you see everybody like, oh, it's $0. This is the greatest thing ever. I know. That needs to change. Um, yeah. I mean, I understand like it's it's a, uh, it's easy, especially if you, you have no, I mean, if you don't have cash, that's, that's one of the yeah, only things you do. But you just, you totally pay for it in the long run. Who the heck is buying that phone that's adding a smartphone plan that doesn't have cash? Yeah. That's, well, I mean, right? I guess like, a lot of people Like, they shouldn't be buying a smartphone. Right? 
Well, but are they? I mean, like, I never see sales numbers for the 3GS. That's true. It's always like, oh, well, they sold, like, this many iPhones. Like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, like, nobody should be buying a 3GS. Like, it's a, it's magical. Like, I don't know. Anybody that recommends that, I'm just like, you're living in this land where only that exists. <laughs> as you're, it literally, where only that exists as the $0 device. Yeah. You know? Like, and who's going to do that? Like, nobody should. No, that's true. I mean, admittedly, I, I never do that. I always recommend because you're you're wasting your upgrade on that, right? Like you might as well get something better that you know is actually worth the upgrade. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to get stuck on the iPhone again, though. No, I, I, like, I agree. Don't talk um, about so Apple. We we just talked about oh. Nvidia. Um, Ryan, oh. you've actually reviewed the most recent Nvidia product out of all of us here. Um, oh yeah, the GeForce GTX 660 Ti. Yes. So this is a. Three hundred dollar twenty eight nanometer Kepler. Correct. It's based off the same GK one hundred four GPU that we see in the existing GTX six seventy and six eighty. So this is you know it, it, it's funny uh, consoles have kind of been around for way too long. Like they've they definitely are well beyond ripe at this point for this generation. Um, and you're seeing kind of that uh, I don't want to say resurgence of PC gaming, but you know folks care about building gaming PCs. You know, if I've got a, uh, let's say, a uh, GPU that's a couple years old, maybe a little more, and I'm kind of looking to upgrade now, what's your uh, what's your take on the landscape right now? Uh, well, things just got really interesting this week. We have the GTX 660 Ti launch last week, and then this week, AMD, and a surprise move to even me, they uh, reshuffled their prices. Uh, by the time this podcast comes out on Monday... Their uh, full price cut should be taking effect. So we're talking about a uh, seventy-eight fifty for under two hundred dollars and a seventy-eight seventy for two hundred fifty dollars. So things actually have become really interesting virtually overnight. So, but what is you know if if give me some recommendations here. If I've got one hundred fifty bucks, two hundred fifty bucks, you know, let's say low three hundreds, and then infinite budget. What what are what are Ryan's picks? Ah, uh, well, let's see, at 150 bucks, right now the best you can do is the uh, Radeon 7770. Uh, really, NVIDIA is not competitive anywhere until $300. Anywhere between 0 and 300 that's all AMD territory. Interesting. So and then what got, happens at $300? At $300, you've got your choice of either a, uh, a 7950 that's on sale with GTX 660 uh, Ti. And that really comes down to what games you like how well you value uh, efficiency, power consumption, noise. The 660 has an advantage there. Or let's say overclocking, where the 7950 is prone to overclocking like bad. Interesting. Um, and then, sorry, I, I, I guess I interrupted you. What, what was your, uh, what's the $200-ish dollar recommendation? $200 recommendation would be the Radeon 7850. And and so with with so many, um, I, I know we were in a period not too long ago where AMD's drivers had, had kind of fallen back to not being all that great. Uh, what's their current state of things right now? Uh, as far as everything we run, uh, it looks great. You know, uh, their 12.7 beta release back in June really put them on the right track. Crossfire performance is finally uh, where it should be on all the games we test. We're not encountering any weird issues, graphical corruption... Uh, there's crashes, any of the little things that you don't necessarily experience regularly, but had been appearing on certain games from time. Okay, right now, but... I'd say their drivers are the best they've been at least in a year and a half. 
Okay. And that's, so you'd be okay recommending an AMD card right now for, for someone that maybe had, still has some of that bad taste in their mouth from, from when AMD kind of dipped a bit in terms of driver quality? Yeah, I'd say they're doing well enough right now. Okay. Um, and then at, at $300, if you want something that uh, is kind of a, a bit more power efficient, let's say you're building a mini ITX-based gaming machine, go 660 Ti. Otherwise... Oh, yeah. For something like METX, yeah, 660 Ti, definitely. And then, you know, this is something that, you know, is, is we always kind of wonder, right? What is the... Let, let's say you have between 0 and $400 what is the sweet spot recommendation, right? What, you know, is it better to buy a $200 card now and then upgrade again more frequently to another $200 card? Or should you spend the $400 initially? Like what's, what's the sweet spot and, and going to kind of be the most efficient upgrade that you can do on the graphics side? So in terms of performance per dollar, I'd say $200, $300 is usually a sweet spot. Once you get above $300, you know, prices start going up very quickly for only a little more performance. You only have to look at the GeForce 600 series to see how that works out. That said, there's something to be said for buying something powerful enough to do everything you want right away. Uh, if you went for something like, say, a 7870 or 7850, you're probably doing a bit better on the price-performance curve, but if you get up to $300, you're going to get a card that you can be sure can handle everything at 1080p that you throw at it with anti-aliasing. So if you want to be able to run everything, you know, look to spend about $300 um, and then just kind of save the $100 that you would put into a more expensive GPU and, and kind of use that for an earlier upgrade down the road. Correct. I, you know, it depends on just how picky you are. Me, you know, I take the most powerful GPU I can get because I want to throw a super sample anti-aliasing and everything. But for most people, you know, cheap 1080p monitors, uh, you really shouldn't need to spend more than $300 on a GPU. But if you, um, so, you know, I, I, Brian was actually the one that, that pointed this out to me, that you get one of those uh, uh, cheap 2560 by 1440 27-inch displays for, like, 400 bucks or whatever. Ah, um, uh, yes, the cat leap. Now, if you've yeah. got a cat leap, uh, you need to be prepared to spend as much on a video card as you spent on the monitor. 2560 so really, by 1440 really increases your requirements. So you, you, you guarantee you have to buy a GTX 680 or something equivalent? At least, yeah, GTX 680 ready on 79, 70 gigahertz edition. Something there that's offering peak single GPU performance because on most games, unless you want to scale back the quality, you're going to need it. And Brian, you're still running those monitors, right? You have one or two of them. I, I love them. So there's actually <clears throat> there's actually a bunch, right? There's the Achiva Shimian. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's the Shimian. <laughs> I always say like Shimi me 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 in. And then there's the y Yamakasi Catley. And then there's somebody, and those are the two like Korean ones you need to order from eBay that are like 350 um, around. It depends. There's a couple different SKUs. Ones have top glass. Some don't have top glass. And these are LED backlit IPS panels. That's correct. They're, um, <clears throat> they're the same LG panel as what gets shipped in the Apple Cinema Display 27-inch but different grades so like sometimes they're a sometimes they're a minus but then there's there's another one too that ganesh um found that's the nexius view 27 inch and we wrote about that and that one's 430 and it's going to be imported by like somebody in the u.s and it's not going to be this weird ebay like ship it over thing and i believe those are all a grade guaranteed they are a grade guaranteed i'm sorry and <clears throat> it's the same same deal though right like you just get this phenomenal 
like IPS, tw you know, like 20, you know, 2560 by 1440 display for way less than you're used to paying. But, and the answer is yes, I still run the Yamakasi and the Cat Leap, and I don't have a Nixius, and I've sold several friends on the, the Cat Leap. Um, and other than one that has like some weird issues when it turns on sometimes and displays garbage until you restart it, all, all of them are great. That's so, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I... and like that's that's the mileage that you get. So, yeah, I'm Ryan, just what, glad what people are say? excited about IPS monitors. You know, for the longest time, everything was so focused on uh, bringing prices down on 1080p TN monitors without much regard for quality. Now here we are, 27-inch monitor, brilliant colors, great angles, only $400, and everybody's excited about it. So it's great yeah. to see return to focus on quality. Me too. Like, honestly, and that's why I kind of, like, got a little bit disenfranchised with the display review thing, is that, or, because that industry is in a race to the bottom. Like, it is actively involved in a race to the bottom. Like, who can deliver the worst display possible so that when you sort the categories on Newegg, you're at the top, right? Like, sub $300, 1080p, 27-inch, like, god-awful stand, all this other stuff. But now we're starting to see an emergence and it's again purely a function of this other market that's not the u.s market that's not accepting that quality and that wants an ips panel and you know like there are some there are extra volume there are extra displays that don't meet the dell or apple quality guidelines which is like perfection and there you go and you know like i should note none of mine Mine, one of mine has a one red stuck pixel. That's it. That's the only other defect. Yeah, the one I saw, um, you know, one of my friends ordered one. Uh, I, I didn't see any any dead or any stuck pixels at all. Right. So, you know, what are the caveats? Well, you need to get a different power supply. I mean, a different power cable because it comes with like the European slash Korean, you know, two prong, two, uh, like there's a name for that power uh, socket. I forget, yeah. I forget the type. And um, you need to get a new one of those cables, but they're like the the power cable that everybody has like a million of. Yes. And then there's that external power brick, which is kind of ugly. Like I, everybody hates external power bricks, and it's DVI only, but that's not a big deal, you know. But the uh, the Nexius View, the one that I was mentioning, the Ganesh covered, that's 430. That one has VGA, HDMI, DVI, and DisplayPort. That's awesome because that, yeah. that's one of the major complaints that my friend who bought one has is that it doesn't have you know anything but dual link DVI. Yeah, that's weird that that's a complaint to me though. Like Ryan, I mean, am I completely insane here? What's what's the deal with display? I mean, what's the deal with DVI? Oh, so uh, it's a it's a complaint for him because his work laptop is a MacBook Pro oh, that has okay. DisplayPort out. Um, so he he would like the flexibility to be able to plug that in. But for his gaming PC, it doesn't matter at all because he has DVI, obviously. I see. Yeah, DVI is not going anywhere anytime soon. For better or worse, it's going to be with us for a while, a lot like uh, VGA was. Although it would be nice if we could get over to DisplayPort, especially everybody using the same size DisplayPort, laptops and uh, desktop PCs alike. Yeah, Actually, no, I'd, yeah. I'd be a fan of that as well. Um, okay, I, uh, what do you think? This this is a good length. Do you guys want to find a stopping point here? Sounds I think good to so. me. Yeah, okay. I think, yeah. 
Um, so yeah, thank you all for listening. Uh, we will try to make this a weekly affair. Um, so, uh, look for us back again in about a week and, um, any final remarks from either of you, Brian? No, I'm good. I think we said all that there is to be said for right now, but I mean, we'll probably talk more about SOCs and more phones and stuff later. Actually. Yeah, you know, going into September, there are a lot of announcements that are happening. So there's there's going to be a lot to talk That's about pretty true. soon. Yeah, here. Um, absolutely. Ryan, any any closing remarks? Uh, nope. All good here. Looking forward to September like everyone else. Awesome. Well, any, anyways, thank you all for listening, and as always, thank you for reading the site. And uh, we will uh, you'll hear from us in about another week. <laughs>